Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to Heritage Voices episode 4.1 bonus episode. I'm today's host, Jessica Uquinto. Today, I'm talking to Tina Steggy and Dr. Jenny Newell about preserving cultural heritage in the face of climate change. So today is a bonus episode. Uh, it's a follow-up to a previous episode I did with Tina Steggy on climate change and nuclear legacy in the Marshall Islands. If you haven't checked out that episode, which is episode four. It's a good overview of the topics that we're going to cover today, and it would be a good one to check out before diving into this one. So briefly, for those of you who missed it, Tina Steggy is an anthropologist from the Marshall Islands whose work predominantly focuses on both climate change and getting the U.S. to recognize and assist the Marshall Islands with the effects of the nuclear bombs they dropped as tests on some of the islands in the 1950s. So welcome back, Tina. Hi. Glad to be back. Thanks, Jessica. All right. And on this episode, we are also lucky to have Dr. Jenny Newell, who is currently the collection co-manager of the Pacific Collection at the Australian Museum, Sydney. She received her PhD at the Australian National University from the History Department and the Center for Cross-Cultural Research. She previously served as the Curator of Pacific Ethnography at the American Museum of Natural History, an Assistant Curator at the British Museum, and a Research Fellow at the National Museum of Australia. Her interests focus on material culture and the relationship between Pacific Islanders and their environments. She recently co-edited Curating the Future, Museums, Communities, and Climate Change, which is available through the Rutledge Press. Thanks for being here today, Jenny. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. All right. So since we spent the beginning of the last episode getting to know Tina a little bit, let's get to know you, Jenny, a little bit. So what got you interested in this kind of work? Did you just go to a museum one day when you were a kid and say, done, this is it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess I've always been really interested in the relationships of people and environment. That's always been something that's very close to my heart. At university, I was really wanting to, to learn more about the Pacific, which is this wonderful area right next to Australia, which we knew almost nothing about when I was going through school. It wasn't introduced to students very much as a region. And so I felt you know, very curious about, about this place, which I'm sure, yeah, I was, I was very sure there was going to be a lot of fascinating and wonderful cultures there and you know I was right so I was I've um, had a wonderful time exploring the Pacific and, and really loving the way that people are so intimately interconnected with their environment 
and and I was very warmly welcomed into the places that I visited in the Pacific and so I sort of really fell in love with the, the opportunities that I was given there and, and with the, the places and the people there. So just curious, did you get the chance to travel much when you were a kid or before you went to university or did this really develop when you were at university and later? I did travel once to Sri Lanka with my family when we were adopting my my sister and that was a, a formative experience for me and I guess I really have remained fascinated by by other cultures and other ways of being in the world and other ways of understanding the world since then and yeah I guess that that really got me started. Nice so I know you've worked on quite a few projects throughout the Pacific could you highlight some of the the collaborative efforts that you've worked on throughout the years? Yes, I've had uh, wonderful collaborations. Um, primarily, my most wonderful and fav- favourite one has been working with with Tina. I've also had the great opportunity to work with many different groups in London and in New York. In London, I was um, able to work with Nati Ranana, the London Maori community. And we worked on various exhibition programs and a whole range of different things there. And in New York, we've had a lot of support of the museum through Halawai, the Hawaiian community there, and lots of projects we've worked on together. And you know, we've had Pacific open house sessions at at the museum, and and had uh, joint projects around the um, arrival of Hokulea, the the voyaging canoe, and and those sorts of collaborations which help to bring Pacific cultures to a broader audience. I think it has been been all been very rewarding. So one question that I'd like to, I'm, I'm personally curious about, Tina had mentioned before that you had done some repatriation work with the Maori, sending, mm. sending cultural items, I believe, back to them. And just curious, because you were working in the U.S. at that point, whether you had much of an, uh, a sense or an experience on how that kind of work or or that kind of work with groups in the Pacific or starting from, you know, the Australian Museum, for example, how that differs mm-hmm. from, for example, NAGPRA. I don't, I don't know if you... Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the, the way it stands in the U.S., is that you know through NAGPRA there's a very formal and organised way of returning remains, returning ancestral remains to communities, whereas the rest of the world um, falls into a much more amorphous and sort of ambiguous category. And so that that kind of, I mean that's that just means that there's no program of actually contacting communities and saying that we have some of your ancestors in this institution. The way it's worked is that it's it's dealt with on a case by case basis. And so when the uh, Te Papa Tongarewa group who were mandated to to organise repatriations on behalf of the whole of Aotearoa New Zealand. And when they approached us, we were able to just look at that that request and, and deal with that request on a sort of, you know, a fairly just, just looking at that particular case and dealing with it in the way that we felt best. And it went very smoothly and I was very pleased that it it was such a you know, pretty much straightforward process to to work with them to, to ensure that those tupuna were returned to their homeland. Nice. So what do you think about this project or 
some of the other projects that you've worked on, what do you think has made them particularly successful? So I guess some of the, the really successful aspects of the, the projects that I've worked on with Tina around the Marshall Islands has been the extent to which Tina's been prepared to, to share so much with me and that I've been able to, yeah, the team has really been able to introduce me to, to so many of the, the depths and the complexities of, of what's going on in the contemporary uh, Marshall Islands, but also some of the, you know, sort of the longer term traditions and, and histories that have led up to, to where the Marshall Islands are today. And I guess we've, we have a lot, <coughs> sorry, my voice is, is not cooperating today. <laughs> You're good. Is <laughs> Tina still there, by the way? I'm here. Okay. Right. Okay. No, just because my screen, it looked like it got yeah, hung up on you or something for a second. No, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. I was wondering Sorry. when I had to stop Jenny from, well, I had to jump in and say how much Jenny brings to this. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. You go for it. I was just going to um, say that. Um, no, no, you go for it. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. I was going to say, I think. Tina and I have so many interests in common that it's it's always it's just a huge pleasure um, working with Tina and that we both are, have got the same aims in wanting to really broaden understandings and care for the Marshall Islands in the in the broader community, not just in the states but internationally. And so I guess we're both working to that to that same aim. Therefore, it's just it's always it's just a great pleasure to work together. And I think we we can you know can make quite a lot of headway because of that. Yeah, and I would, I would, yeah, <laughs> I think at the base of it, Jenny and I just have so much fun. So that's yeah. no. <laughs> really no. it, it's, it's maybe we shouldn't be having so much fun, but I actually think that that's what makes it so meaningful in a way, because yes, we have a lot of the same aims and I learned, I learned so much too. I mean, I've, I really hadn't had much experience or contact with museum work before starting to work with Jenny. And it's funny because I had on a personal level been to that museum, the American Museum of Natural History, so much um, in the years prior to meeting Jenny because I had young children and I lived 10 blocks away. And you know I would go there not every week, but almost nearly every week. And, and I actually never went to the Pacific Islands section in the museum because it's pretty outdated and there was it didn't speak to me. And so it wasn't until after meeting Jenny that I really realized how much museums had to had to offer for indigenous communities on a much more personal level both, but just that there are all those treasures in there and it's just a matter of of opening them up for for people like me and you know for communities and I think that's what that was what Jenny did that hadn't been ha I hadn't seen that happening at that particular museum um, and she came on and she just really like lit a fire and all of a sudden there are all these Pacific Islanders in the museum and you know doing work or attending talks or giving talks and it all of a sudden became more of a living museum or in my head it, it went from a, a museum like I thought of museums in the west to I guess more of a to sort of a place that was alive 
And I think that was really exciting. And so the collaboration, I've learned so much and it's made me just excited to be around museums and to, to think about all the things that they can do. And particularly in this time. Yeah, and Thank that's... You, <laughs> One of the nicest things anyone's ever said about me in my work. Thank you. <laughs> lovely. Wow. Very lovely. That is something that I would really like to dive into a little bit more. That what you said right there was, you know, basically the, the museum, museum exhibit being outdated and not speaking to you. And then, and then that transition to having it come alive and, and be a place where you really felt at home. What do you think it was specifically that made that change happen? I mean, obviously Jenny, but like, what did Jenny do that you felt like really? There were so many different pieces. It wasn't just one thing. The, she, there were several things. Uh, she started, I think, I forget what you called them, Jenny, the sort of Pacific Islander nights. Uh, it was almost like a open days, yeah. Open days where mm. um, people in the Pacific Island community would be invited to the museum after hours to to talk to each other and to be in the Pacific Hall. That I think that was sort of a beginning, but then there were so many other things inviting me to go back into the archives and see objects that weren't on display out in the front and realized really how many things were back there that were just, you know, these treasures that I hadn't ever seen. And not just me, I mean, people coming in from the marshals, making sure that people who were here for UN meetings or for whatever reason would have that chance to go into the archives. And by the way, it's not an easy thing. You have to get all of these permissions <laughs> to, <laughs> to get into those archives. Like Jenny had to go through bureaucracy to make sure that you know, <laughs> we could go see our things. But right. she did it. Uh, and that, that was huge. Then the very, one of the very last things before she left, she opened an exhibit that showcases, it's in the Pacific Hall. So the Pacific Hall is still there. It's still pretty outdated. They haven't updated that hall and I'm not sure how many decades, but Jenny was able to, yeah, able to put in a new, a new case and the case showcases contemporary Pacific art and climate change related narratives. And I think it, it's, it's a shot of, I guess, the contemporary and what's happening today into a, a, a hall that is pretty outdated. So those are just and a Tina few. was one of the people who contributed to that case. And so it's been great being able to bring some Pacific Islander voices into that hall. So and Tina and, and others. Other, yeah, other, yeah, and other, other yeah, Pacific who yeah. participated in that. Um, so it's, it's a whole... I, I don't know how Jenny did it. I mean, she just, <laughs> she did so many things, <laughs> but all those things together really brought it, brought that place alive. I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, with a little help from my friends. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing how much these stories are 
remain true in different places and in different times. So for example, um, the interview that I did with um, the Grand Canyon tribal program manager, she's touching on a lot of these really similar themes. And one thing that the two, like you're talking and her interview that they really touch on for me, you're talking about the museum exhibit being outdated. And I know that in the Southwest, for example, when museum exhibits are outdated, they'll talk about things like places being abandoned. So there are ancestral places for the tribes around here, and they'll say, oh, this was abandoned in this year. And the tribes really don't. They don't like that because it's, it, it basically implies a disconnect or that, the, that these places aren't still important to them culturally. So I'm I'm curious for the Pacific if there's when you say outdated if there's specific things that you want to make sure that people know versus that the more outdated narratives. Definitely, I mean I think Tini might want to comment on that as well. I guess my um, my great sort of challenge with that hall, the Margaret Mead Hall of Pacific Peoples that was first opened in the 70s and then reopened a bit later on in, in the in the 80s was to to well, try and do all those things that Tina was, was mentioning and try to bring it, that space to life and try to bring some sense of ongoing, continuing peoples and ongoing, continuing creativity and the, some sense of what the, the current issues are for people in the Pacific instead of always just presenting these rather static and very historic views of, of those many different Pacific peoples in, in this sort of, you know, very caught within a, a glass case kind of way. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hall that doesn't allow any of that vibrancy or uh, creativity or change to, to come to the fore. And that's, that's what we were trying to do with this case that we curated with a wonderful team of museum anthropology students at Columbia University along with some great advisors from the Pacific. So we um, we were hoping to to just be able to make some of those those great absences and silences that are there now in the hall sort of to be to be embroidered and to, to um, allowed allowed to to speak a bit more. So we wanted we wanted to be able to do that with that new case. And and hopefully in time that that's the sort of revitalization that we'll be able to do in other parts of the hall we are doing um, the museum is still continuing with putting in some new labels and and uh, new photographs and a few a few things like that which will help um, but over time we could hope um, there'll be a new Pacific curator there and that that, that, that new person will will continue with, with that process nice all right so we are at a break point um, so we're going to be back in a few moments What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, and we are back. So all of this talk that, that we're having about the American Museum of Natural History makes me curious. I know you just got to the Australian Museum, but are there any big efforts that you want to push in your work there, Jenny? Here at the Australian Museum, mm-hmm. many, many big efforts. Um, we've got <laughs> a really exciting program here. Um, the Australian Museum is very keen to become kind of like a, you know, a leader in the in the field of engaging with Pacific cultures and helping the broader community understand Pacific cultures more fully, become a leader in research in the Pacific and particularly around Pacific collections and also particularly around climate change. So it's a really exciting exciting phase to be here. We're wanting to set up a new research centre and, and open up ways to facilitate Pacific Islanders coming to do research and residencies here at the museum and, and all sorts of you know exciting commissions and new purchases of work, artworks and all sorts of great things. So we're really looking forward to this new new phase. And I'm, I'm a, the co-manager of the Pacific Collection here, along with Michael Mell, who's from Garoka. And it's really it's wonderful to be able to be working with Michael and we're um, enjoying the partnership and, and bringing our very different experiences and backgrounds on the, on the Pacific to our work here and he's really into performance art and and, and other issues to do with people and environment so we're, we're really working closely together on on, on all of that yeah, it's, it's a great a... place to be there's such a such a big Pacific community here and there's so many people from across the Pacific it's just really really great place for for me to be so and I know Michael's enjoying it too yeah I'm sure it must be nice to be back home too it is. It's great. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's wonderful to be back with our family here. And we do miss our New York friends. Miss yeah. Tina. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We moved yes. on to the block where Jenny lived. And then oh, she left know. a month later. Oh. <laughs> but, miss, but now we'll yeah. just get a chance to go visit her in Australia. And hopefully in the dead of winter sometime. That will... <laughs> That's right. Yes. Come to Australia. <laughs> yeah, we need you over here. <laughs> well, that sounds lovely. <laughs> okay. So, do you, would the two of you mind talking a little bit more then about your work together? How, how the two of you, I mean, it sounds like you started working together through the American Museum of Natural History, but, but how that collaboration really developed and what has made it successful. Well, I think as Tina said before, it's because we're such great friends and we just love being together and, and doing lots of things together. So that's that's kind of how, how it's developed so so well. And I guess we've been we, – we worked together initially on a – it was like a community project to link people in New York to people in Samoa after Hurricane Sandy and after Cyclone Evan and comparing experiences that people had after those major 
storm events and how people were recovering and what sort of impact that was having on people's connections to home. And that was really powerful kind of uh, set of um, workshops and discussions and conversations and there's a, a little book coming out of that. And, and I guess you yeah, through that one, you might agree, Tina, that that sort of um, we, we sort of went from there and and decided that we really liked working together and that we had other things we wanted to do as well around the marshals particularly. So um, I guess that's where we went with that. And then a, a project opportunity came up through the American Museum of Natural History. There's a really wonderful family that supports research in sort of research in remote places <laughs> throughout the world. <laughs> The Niakos family. So through a Niakos Foundation grant, Tina and I and our colleague Sergio Horilo de la Torre were able to set up a project to work on climate change in the Marshall Islands. And we had some wonderful collaborate, collaborators in the Marshalls, Tina's brother, Mark, and also Kathy Jetnell-Kishner. So um, you might want to add something there, Tina, about, about that project because it was primarily your design, I think, that we, we worked together on it, but it was really it was your idea about looking at action in the face of climate change challenges that really drove the, the design the design of that project. Yeah, well, the idea was to be on the ground and see what communities were doing. And at that point, when we sort of were putting this project together, there had been quite a lot in the news about the marshals, you know, it was one of the Pacific poster children. I, I sort of think of it like that, where, you know, yeah. the marshals and Tuvalu and Kiribati, you get these stories and there's just this rash of journalists going out and talking about how the seas were rising and, you know, important things, but not necessarily people who had time to um, really be there and understand the sort of real complications of it all and behind people's choices to whether it was to stay or to go or, you know, to build a seawall or to plant plants, you know, all those, all those things is, I thought were being missed. Mm -hmm. uh, and okay. yeah, so we, we got this grant and it allowed us to go out and I was able to go out for almost six weeks. And then Jenny and Sergio came out for a week and a, a month. I think Sergio was there for a month. And we, or Jenny was there for a couple of weeks. We ended up there a couple spending, of weeks, yeah. And we were able to spend time both in Madro, which is the center, uh, where, you know, the center of the government, where a lot of, you know, there's, there's sort of a lot of action in Madro. And then, but we were also, I think just as importantly, able to spend a, a week on one of the outer islands. So we took a fly, flight out to Namurik Atoll. And it's, you know, a place where there's a flight once a week. And it's very small, a few hundred people, not anymore. It's, and it's also a place where a, I knew that a lot of work had been done all around climate change at the community level. And one of our collaborator collaborators was actually now Minister Matlin Zachris, but he's the senator for that atoll. Uh, and he's a colleague from a long time, for, for, he's been a colleague for a long time. And he's done a ton of work with his community and his, com and his mayor is amazing. 
and they've just been, you know, doing the day-to-day stuff with their community to try to figure out how to respond to some of the effects of climate change. And I wanted to capture that story and not just for the outside world, but for Marshallese themselves, the idea that, you know, not necessarily, we may not necessarily understand how much resilience we have or how much strength we have or the things that we can do, that things are happening maybe on one atoll that people on another don't know and trying to make connections within our communities because connections are what make us stronger generally, you know, as a country, as a people. Mm. So, so that was, that was sort of the idea behind it all. And, and we had a great time. Yeah. It was a very, very special time. Yeah. It was, um, I, I learned so much. It was just incredible to, and a great honor to be able to be welcomed into those communities and, and for people to just sit and talk to us. And it was, it was one of those things where it couldn't have happened without Tina and, and Mark and, and Kathy, but really the, the way that Sergio and I, who don't speak Marshallese, were able to just come in and really feel that we were um, understanding a lot of, of what, 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 what people are experiencing and, and what they're doing about it. It was very, just really heartening, actually, because it's so, we're so often surrounded by the stories of the doom and gloom and how, how terrible things are and how, how much people are being affected in these really tragic ways by by the impacts of climate change and then to hear all the, the ways that people are just like really really standing up and joining hands and and fighting this and finding ways forward to and staying positive and really working together very inspiring i think there's a lot of really strong messages there from what we were hearing to take back to to communities around the world actually who were who if they're not dealing with major impacts from climate change are going to be dealing with them before too long. It was a lot to a lot to learn from the Marshall Islands. Right. Yeah, you mentioned before we started the call about a couple different types of, of findings that that you guys were gathering from this conversation or from this project and resilience and, and strength definitely being a, a huge one. Uh, did you want to touch a little bit more on some of your specific findings? Yeah, do you want to speak to that, Tina, first? No, you go ahead. <laughs> okay, I guess I, I think <laughs> Tina knows this all very intimately. <laughs> but um, for me, what really struck me as an outsider coming in was was seeing the, I guess, like like the cultural resources that that are there in the Marshalls, and and every every place has its own set of cultural resources for dealing with with disaster or ongoing difficulties or changes and in the Marshall Islands it's really this sense of um it's called Lale Ron I'm saying that right Tina Lale Ron yeah thank you Lale. and and that's uh working together and caring for each other and there's there's this is an idea that's common in many parts of the Pacific and there's always a local word to to, to sum it up and it's this way that everyone supports each other so when there's a drought people's uh, water tanks might have been running dry but their neighbor would still have water and so of course they were fine because they still had water from their neighbor if someone's lost their breadfruit trees or their banana crops to and their breadfruit trees or their banana trees to a flood or to the 
encroaching, slowly encroaching seawater. There's always going to be a neighbour who has some breadfruit and bananas that they can share with them. I mean, I guess going forward, that's that's going to be harder when everyone perhaps will have lost their, their crops. But there's always going to be a broader network beyond the immediate island and beyond the immediate community where people can draw on other people in other places across the marshals and, and also get help from the broader network of, of family and friends out across the world, mostly across the states. So there's sort of a sense of a, a broad network that people can rely on. So even though they're not you know, really networked in electronic ways or, or in, sort of, you know, in terms of good transport links, there's, there's other ways that people are linked with these strong bonds between people and that they're still effective bonds and, and really important bonds that are they're enacted, even though they're not able to be enacted through communications or transport necessarily. It's sort of there's other ways that, that people are able to get that kind of those kinds of support networks working for them. I think the Marshall Islands have always been seen as being very effective in terms of climate change activism and, and getting their voice heard on the international arena. And that's certainly it's been incredibly impressive the, the ways that Tony de Brum and the others you know, Hilda, you know, of course, the new the new Prime Minister, have all been so effective at, at really presenting the Marshall Islands case and, and really raising awareness around the world on the international forum about the impacts of climate change in the Pacific. And the the thing that we were really looking at is 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 that effectiveness on the international stage, is that also working in the on the, the local level? Is that are the links, the communication links, are they working effectively? In the marshals themselves, between islands and within islands, and it's particularly that link between people who are able to affect change or get funding in in Madro in the centre, and then mm. out to the outer islands. And we did find that there were some some places where those links could be strengthened. And so we had a workshop that was really bringing people together to to share those kinds of problems or where, where we people were identifying gaps and looking for ways of closing those gaps up. That that. I think worked really well as it was a good first step. Hmm. That's interesting. Tina, did you have any more that you wanted to add to all that? Well, one thing I would add that came up a lot when we were there, maybe this isn't necessarily, I think it is a part of resilience in the sense that it was something that people were proud of and they felt that represented progress in their community. And so there's a pearl farm that had been started I would say in the mid 2000s in the Marshall, well, not in, in Namruk Atoll. And it's the only atoll at the moment which is producing pearls. There had been pearl farms in other atolls, but for various different reasons, they, had, they have shut down. But this one is, is continuing to produce. And it's had a lot of support, funding support from outside and the links for that so funding support have been really through, I think the mayor and the senator have been able to sort of get funding. It's, it's a pretty capital intensive kind of thing to start a pro farm uh, and it takes but, several years for, for it to, to show any return. And there were quite a few of the people that we talked to who, you know, we, we sort of asked the question, what do you think the future looks like? And they would say, well, there's 
there's great, you know, there's good things happening here. There's, there's a, you know, and then, and then they would mention the Pearl Farm. So mm. going to Jenny's point, it, this, it's not, it, people are, are there and there are, there are things happening that, that people are proud of and they, they're, they love where they live. <laughs> and, mm. uh, for lots of different reasons and not just because it's the traditional place where they have ties to the land. That is true. I think that people love it for that reason, but they also like it for, for new things, new developments, exciting signs of the way that the community is moving forward. So I think that also shows it's a, it's, it's a vibrant, it's a vibrant community. Mm. And uh, um, we wanted to celebrate that, I guess. I, I always <laughs> want to celebrate that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. So I guess the, the natural next question from that then is how do we take that vibrant community and adjust it to, to a post-climate change world? Is hmm. there oh, a way to... <laughs> right yeah yeah i guess we'll never have a post-climate change world unfortunately we're always going to be right. living right. in it um but once it gets really difficult for people to support themselves to be able to grow enough food and have enough fresh water right. in their home places and people do have to think about moving i think it's really interesting that in the marshall islands people already have a sense of you know, where they might go or, or, or not necessarily thinking about themselves as moving because not everyone has thought that, you know, along those lines, but that people have a sense of themselves being connected to you know, Arkansas or Hawaii or, you know, other places because their children are there or their cousins there or you know, they've, got, they've got broader networks and so there's already sort of places where they have a bit of belonging. And I don't know if, there's, if that's necessarily the case in some of the other Atoll communities across the Pacific. This is not necessarily places where people can really obviously move to. So it's it depends a lot on that that kind of context and the sort of the, the basic logistics of being able to move between countries. The Compact of Free Association with the states makes a big big difference, and that's you know it's going to it's going to have a lot of impact in terms of shaping. The, what the future looks like for, for Marshall Islanders. And, and I think, can, can you explain real quick for those people that may not know what that is, what the, the compact of, you said free association is? Yeah, compact, so Tina, do you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, I think so. The, well, the compact of free association is an agreement that regulates the relationship between the U.S. and the Marshall Islands. We were a trust territory of the United States or administered by the United States until 1986, which is when this compact went into effect. And it does a bunch of things, but some of the, the sort of major, major things is that the U.S. has basically defense rights in over the Marshall Islands. So there's actually a military base there. We have political independence. And we also, Marshallese, are able to enter the United States without a visa. So we can move to the United States on a Marshall Islands passport, and we can live, work, or go to school in the United States, I guess, you know, indefinitely. You're not a citizen. Uh, in fact, we're 
classified as a non-immigrant, <laughs> um, <laughs> but but it means that many of our folks have moved to the U.S. We have a huge community in Hawaii, a huge for us, a huge community in Arkansas, and also now more and more on the in the Northwest, uh, and in all these sorts of places where you would never expect. Marshallese to be. There are Marshallese there. And in fact, when we were on that outer island, Namadik, pretty much everybody we talked to had you know, several relatives, sons or daughters or fathers or you know mothers who were living in the United States. And that they very much, like Jenny was saying, felt connected to those those people. And when we asked what would you do in terms of disasters, they said, well, we, we also depend on people, our, our family who live abroad for, for right. help. So. Right. Okay, so we're going to take our final break real quick, and then when we get back, we will just jump right into it. Women in Archaeology is a show about archaeology by the Women of Archaeology. An alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day. Check out Women in Archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash WIA. Now let's get back to the show. Well, and, and that brings me to a question that I don't I don't know if, if people have started talking about this or if there is an answer at all to this, but right now, um, the Marshall Islands obviously is, is a sovereign nation. And if the Marshall Islands become uninhabitable, what happens to that political entity? I mean, you are a people with a, a sovereign government. Does that uh, is there any sort of transition there or, you know, I mean, do you become basically a stateless government? Has there been any sort of discussion about what happens there? There's actually a book where uh, several legal scholars have weighed in on this. <laughs> and uh, I forget the name of the book right now, but it's Michael Gerard is the main editor of it. And it, He's at Columbia, and they actually did a symposium just thinking about this question. The RMI government was one of the sponsors of that of that symposium. I don't know that there's any, there is no answer. As far as I know, there's no answer as yet. There's, but there's a lot of theoretical answers. You know, theoretical hypotheses. What right. might happen? Right. So I know that Jenny's going to have to, to cut out after not too long. So I want to make sure that we get to the book. Mm. So Jenny, could you introduce your your book and give us a, a basic overview? Sure. So Curating the Future, Museums, Communities and Climate Change is a, an edited volume. And I edit it with Kirsten Weiner of the National Museum of Australia and Libby Robin, who's also at that museum, and the Australian National University. And we were really keen to, to bring together many different voices from around the world 
to think through, to talk about, discuss what it is that museums can do to help people to engage with the issues of climate change and to take action on those issues. Museums are really great places for doing that and they're you know, ideally suited for people to, to come in and sort of stop and slow down and reflect and think through some of these tricky issues. Museums are good for, they're sort of like a slow media. They're places where people stop and expect to be learning a little bit, thinking about things, taking in new ideas and and museums also really good places for, for debate, good platforms for debate and for just sort of encouraging people to rethink rethink the sorts of uh, perhaps more sort of settled ideas they might have. We want to sort of unsettle people and, and really help them to, to, to shake themselves up and, and move forward. So we brought people together for a symposium um, to begin with. That was in 2013 and Tina was there. And we brought people from the Pacific, from communities that are already dealing with climate change, people who work in museums there in the Pacific, and people who work either as curators or historians or designers, exhibition designers, and uh, and many other people, um, you know, artists who have been engaging with climate change in lots of different ways. And we, we had this really great few days of, of thinking through effective ways of, of getting these messages out and and encouraging engagement in those in those uh, issues. And out of those great conversations. We, we put together a book and so a lot of it is, you know, we had a lot of contributors from the American Museum of Natural History and they spoke about a specific instance, a particular exhibition or a particular collection that really um, helped to advance those sorts of um, ideas. And, and then also we had, we had people talk about um, sort of the you know, broader issues about how museums can be effective in the sort of the more ethical and moral uh, position that you know, on that, you know, this sort of the moral uh, obligation of museums to 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 really help people come to grips with with this new climate change era that we're in, and and Tina was was wonderful and was and was agreed to to come in and, and spend some time with the Marshall Islands collection, and she she chose a piece and then wrote about it. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that, Tina. Oh, so I ended up writing about a jagir, which is a a mat that traditionally was used for clothing. It's very finely woven and it actually, that type of weaving, that skill had almost entirely died out in the Marshalls. I mean, Western clothes came in and it was just so much more convenient and people had been wearing those. So we weren't making this kind of work took a lot of time. So people definitely kept weaving, but not this this particular type of weaving. And then it was revived, I think, about 10 years ago now. So the, the last few master weavers have now taught a new generation of weavers this, this skill. The interesting thing is that most Jagir are in museums. I, we don't have them in the marshals. They, they didn't survive. Um, and so there are very, very few examples of Jagir for these, this new generation to actually look at and, you know, see and then and work off of. And yet in museums all over the world, there are Jagir mats that have been preserved. And so I was very, very fortunate to be able to go in and spend time 
with mats at the American Museum of Natural History and I ended up choosing one and the piece I wrote for the book is really short but it was really it was a really special experience for me um, because one I had never written about an object in that way so that was just really fun for me um, but also it brought back for me all these memories because my grandmother was a weaver and so you know I live away from home and I've lived away from home for a long time and you know, I miss my home. <laughs> and so it was really special for me to be able to be at this museum, you know, in New York City and feel connected back to my grandmother and place I grew up and my family who are all still there. So it ended up being really, really special. And like I said, it's, it's a very short piece, but very close to my heart. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's really evocative and I love the way you bring in all the the sensory aspects of that object, you know, the way it smells and how that reminds you of the, the smell of the pandanus when you were with your grandmother and, and the way it feels. And, and it's just, it's really um, a wonderful example of the, the kinds of importances that are around those collections, the way, the way those, the kinds of value, I mean, the, the way that those collections can be a little bit of home for people who, who are, are away from home. And I guess museums would come increasingly important in that way sadly as as more and more people end up needing to leave home right are there proactive things that museums can do now before these places are uninhabitable to to make sure that's there for future generations hmm. do you mean like collecting from those places particularly so, sort of thing or, you mean, or, I mean, I guess proactively we're mm -hmm. you know, doing exhibitions and, you know, and helping people feel connected to museums and making sure we're opening doors much more because um, traditionally museums have been very closed door institutions. It's, um, I think it's important to do that kind of work now. But in terms of collections, I suppose we're often um, guided by what people want to donate to, to, the, to the institution rather than necessarily being able to afford to do a really, you know, um, extensive collecting program and often commissioning things from artists is 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 a wonderful thing to do but also <laughs> quite expensive so it's it's tricky to to necessarily have a an, a concerted program of, of ensuring that there there's cultural patrimony um, from every place in a museum I mean there one are thing, often very good historic collections but yeah yeah sorry Tina well one thing that the that the museum has done in this case was they put all those objects um they photograph them and you can now mm -hmm. view them online. And that's really important for like in the Marshalls where I said, you know, we don't have those mats anymore. You can actually go online now and see, at least see them. It's even, it, it's the best case scenario is to actually be in the same room. But that's you know, right. if that can't happen at the very least, if you can access the objects through technology, then that's that's really important too. Mm -hmm. that's true. I think just it's that accessibility is so important. Right. Mm -hmm. or, or I was also even thinking along the lines of of more of storytelling type projects like um, you know videoing elders mm -hmm. oh, in yeah. certain places talking about you know what the the different places uh, in the islands mean to them or what they mean culturally. Mm -hmm things like that. Is there any efforts to yes, do? Yes, I guess that, that kind of that's a little bit of what Tina and I were doing um, to, with Sergio. Mm -hmm. um, 
in the Marshalls. Right. But yes, certainly there are other projects like that going on, and I'm certainly keen to to advance those kinds of recordings and you know, really, really get yeah, stories are so so important, and and those ways of of capturing and um, sharing the uh, those histories and, and ongoing uh, values in those in those places. That's true. Right. It's very important. Right. Yeah. Or I'm I'm even thinking like some of the the work that we're really interested doing in doing is mapping projects. So mm. going out with youth and elders and you know, having recorders and, and um, GIS and basically creating a cultural map of a place, which I, I could imagine in a place that people soon won't necessarily be able to visit, that that could be even more powerful. That's yeah. actually an idea that the, so my brother, who was also part of the project over the summer, is heads up the Marshall Islands Conservation Society. And He's really interested in, and then they are doing mapping, and mm -hmm. the the drone technology is yeah right that that really is exciting for him, and you know that cultural mapping, but also just the physical mapping, making you know knowing mm -hmm. where right. everything is, and also that it's it's from a very practical standpoint really important to know these things because with sea level rise, you, just, you have to know where the highest points are. You have to know where the lowest points are. Um, right. You have to know what's important in order to know where you can go. So, yeah, I think that's very much on the radar back, you know, back home. Mm -hmm. And we should mention that, that the Marshall Islands Conservation Society, who who's running that project and many other really important projects, does accept donations. And <laughs> Tina, do you want to read out the URL? Oh, it's atollconservation.org. And I'll include that in the, the show notes for anyone that's interested. So there'll be a link there. There'll also be a link to the book as well. So people will easily right. be able to access both of those. Great. Great. Wonderful. Thank you, Jessica. All right. Well, are there any other resources out there that you would recommend for anyone wanting to learn more? I guess if people are wanting to learn more about um, the Pacific and also doing collaborative work in the in the Pacific, I can recommend reading anything by Paige West. I could, for instance, uh, I could recommend Dispossession in the Environment, Rhetoric and Inequality in Papua New Guinea, a wonderful, wonderful writer and anthropologist and um, activist page and she's um, written about many of these issues in a really engaging way you'll, you'll love to read her work and um, also an important book to think through is Linda Tuhiwai Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies Research and Indigenous Peoples um, also you should always check out 350.org 350.org Pacific has, is doing great things and also, would like to direct you to Joe Jiggum, which is the youth climate change activist group that Kathy Jetnell Kishner and her colleagues are running in the Marshall Islands. Yes, and we talked about her in the last episode. And two of her poems, Tell Them and Dear Matapalapinu, are in the show notes, links to them. And they're beautiful videos, very visually stunning. So, definitely worth checking out the video version. But she has agreed very generously as well to let us share the two poems within the podcast episodes. 
So the last episode featured Tell Them, which Tina mentioned really captured a piece of her soul. And then this episode here in a moment, we're going to be sharing Dear Matapalapenu, which is the poem that Kathy Gentle Kushner presented for the UN Climate Summit in New York that went viral in 2014. So thank you again, Kathy, for allowing us to share. Also, be sure to check out the YouTube video in the show notes by the American Museum of Natural History that shows a video of the work that Tina and Jenny are talking about in these episodes. So check it out. It's really great to have the the visuals associated with, with everything they're talking about, and it just adds so much. So if you like this episode, definitely check out and share that video as well. Great. Thank you. It's been a really lovely conversation. Thank you. So to close out this episode, here is Kathy Jetnell Kitchener with Dear Mata Filipino. Dear Mata Filipino, you are a seven-month-old sunrise of gummy smiles. You are bald as an egg and bald as the Buddha. Your thighs that are thunder, shrieks that are lightning, so excited for bananas, hugs, and our morning walks along the lagoon. Dear Matafilipinum, I want to tell you about that lagoon, that lucid, sleepy lagoon lounging against the sunrise. Men say that one day, that lagoon will devour you. They say it will gnaw at the shoreline, chew at the roots of your breadfruit trees, gulp down rows of your seawalls, and crunch through your island's shattered bones. They say you, your daughter, and your granddaughter too, will wander rootless, with only a passport to call home. Dear Matafilipino, don't cry. Mommy promises you, no one will come and devour you. No greedy whale of a company sharking through political seas. No backwater bullying of businesses with broken morals. No blindfolded bureaucracies gonna push this mother ocean over the edge. No one's drowning, baby. No one's moving. No one's losing their homeland. No one's gonna become a climate change refugee. Or should I say, no one else. To the Carteret Islanders of Papua New Guinea and to the Taro Islanders of Fiji, I take this moment to apologize to you. We are drawing the line here. Because baby, we are going to fight. Your mommy, daddy, boo-boo, dimma, your country, and your president too, we will all fight. And even though there are those hidden behind platinum titles who like to pretend that we don't exist, that the Marshall Islands, Tuvalu, Kiribati, Maldives, and Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines and floods of Pakistan, Algeria, and Colombia, and hurricanes, tidal waves, and earthquakes didn't exist, still, there are those who see us. Hands reaching out, fists raising up, banners unfurling, megaphones booming, and we are canoes blocking coal ships. We are the radiance of solar villages. We are the rich, clean soil of the farmer's past. We are petitions blooming from teenage fingertips. We are families biking, recycling, reusing, engineers dreaming, designing, building, artists painting, dancing, writing. We are spreading the word. And there are thousands out on the street marching with signs, hand in hand, chanting for change now. They're marching for you, baby. They're marching for us. Because we deserve to do more than just survive. 
You deserve to thrive. Dear Matifele Benum, you were eyes heavy with drowsy weight. So just close those eyes, baby, and sleep in peace. Because we won't let you down. You'll see. Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. Or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At US Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Listen up, I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. Hm. Instacart for the win. Oh.